0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of Sremi Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition. Nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Tarlin Hidayati, who you probably remember from our bradycardia episode. She's an EM doc in Chicago, an amazing educator with a special interest in cardiac emergencies. And she was one of our featured speakers at the EM Cases Summit on November 11th on this very topic that we're going to be talking about today, acute heart failure. And for his third or maybe fourth appearance on EM Cases, Dr. Burke Tillman, EM-trained intensivist at Sunnybrook Hospital, welcome back to you both. So
1: great to be back. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. All right. So this is
0: part one of our part two podcast on acute heart failure. In this part one, we're going to quickly review some diagnostic tips and then dive deep into the specifics of managing the patient with acute heart failure who is not in cardiogenic shock. And that includes scape, which if you haven't heard of, don't worry, we've got you covered there. In part two, we'll cover the even more challenging patient with acute heart failure and cardiogenic shock and wrap it up with disposition decisions, including the clinical decision tools for safe discharge let's start with the diagnostic tips. Some of the highlights that we talked about way back in episode four, which was in 2010. Uh, So first, the history. Based on the famous JAMA Rational Clinical Exam Series, the historical features with the highest positive likelihood ratios for a diagnosis of heart failure are first, a past history of congestive heart failure with a positive likelihood ratio of 5.8. Past history of MI, which... a positive likelihood ratio of 3.1 pnd and orthopnea the most sensitive historical feature is shortness of breath on exertion so if they're not short of breath on exertion it's very unlikely to be chf for the physical exam the gem irrational clinical exam reported that an s3 has a positive likelihood ratio of 11 which is pretty much diagnostic that's impressive but I think it's fair to say that we've pretty much lost our cardiac auscultation skills over the years, and I cannot remember the last time a resident actually told me that they heard an S3. So be that as it may, if you have an incredible ear and you have a quiet emergency department, which is almost impossible, then if you hear an S3, great, you've got your diagnosis. Then there's the JVD, which has a likelihood ratio of 5.1, which is, is pretty good, but it's hard to assess. Just by looking at the neck, we all know that. However, POCUS can certainly help you identify the JVP easily, probably an underutilized POCUS move. The other features that have pretty good positive likelihood ratios are any cardiac murmur and leg edema. One great old school point that was made in episode four was that in a patient with heart failure and a narrow pulse pressure, you really should be thinking about high output causes of heart failure, like anemia and thyrotoxicosis. We're, we're going to get into the differential the all the different etiologies of heart failure uh, in this episode. The chest x-ray, it has pretty good test characteristics when combined with a high pretest probability, but not so great in those patients where you have a low or moderate pretest probability. And importantly, when a chest x-ray is shot early on in a patient who has flash pulmonary edema, you can have a perfectly normal chest x-ray. So don't let that sway you the wrong way. BNP, while maybe useful for inpatients to follow their clinical course, has little to no role in the ED. It doesn't really perform any better than physician gestalt, and it may be misleading. Now, since episode four, about a decade ago, there's been a revolution, and that revolution is well known to all of us. It's called POCUS. And we all know it's quite a bit better than chest x ray in diagnosing heart failure. So, Dr. Hadayati. How can POCUS help us out with a diagnosis of heart failure? Is there any evidence suggesting it's any better than chest x-ray? When do you really find POCUS most useful when it comes to assessing the patient with shortness of breath?
1: So- POCUS definitely has a role in any undifferentiated dyspneic patient, not just heart failure. And the greatest advantage of POCUS is that I have immediate access to it. So I'm not dependent on anyone else for the tech to come over from radiology to shoot the film, to upload the film, and then for me to take a look at it on my digitized platform. So it's an immediate data point that I can use at the bedside myself, and I don't really need anybody else. Um, Add to that that it does seem to out perform chest x-ray and physical exam findings in several diagnoses so not just heart failure but even pneumonia so in the setting of suspected heart failure there's a few things i'm looking for on that point of care ultrasound so first and foremost are those b lines and the sensitivity of ultrasound for diagnosing pulmonary edema is exceptionally high. 94% sensitivity, specificity, we're looking at like 92%. So those beelines are money, and that's what you're looking for initially. But then beyond that, I'm looking for things like pleural effusions. I'm going to take a look at that ejection fraction. So move the probe over, take a look at that heart, see what that squeeze looks like. Most of the time, I'm just doing this qualitatively and not quantitatively, but that's a data point that I'm going to need in assessing my patient with suspected heart failure. Take a look at that left ventricular and diastolic dimension. So that's going to be increased um, due to that diastolic pressure and volume in your heart failure patients. JVD, like we mentioned. So we used to rely on purely physical exam findings for JVD, but what if you have a patient that's maybe got a lot of subcutaneous tissue in their neck or maybe they have a short neck? That's going to be tough to see um, with just physical exam. So point-of-care ultrasound is going to be accessible except- Exceptionally helpful here. And then lastly, the IVC. So I'm going to be looking at that IVC size and collapsibility.
0: Excellent. We're going to talk a little bit more about how to integrate all those amazing things that you can do with POCUS in our management. That's more about the uh, diagnosis. Dr. Tillman, anything to add about the diagnosis when it comes to heart failure?
2: So I would think that Dr. Hudaity just covered that amazingly well. The POCUS is so helpful in undifferentiated respiratory failure and really it is my go-to in these patients where we're playing the game as is this heart failure, is this pneumonia, what is going on. I just find it so incredibly useful. The last thing I also think about that sometimes throws me off when you're dealing with a heart failure patient is you can have either the left or the right or you can sort of have a combined heart failure picture. And patients with right-sided heart failure throw me off every now and then because they might not come in with this classic chest x-ray or POCUS ultrasound finding. But then when you look at their IVC or you look at their extremities, you see that these people are truly fluid overloaded. And the symptoms they're having are due to heart failure. It's just not this classic left-sided heart failure entity we think of. So I would really encourage that when you're taking a look at the IVC or the heart, to ensure that you think of the heart as both the left and the right side. And maybe this heart failure patient is one of those more unique ones where the right side of the heart has failed. And that's why maybe you're seeing liver dysfunction right now. So still heart failure, just not that classic dyspneic presentation.
0: All right. And can you just remind listeners of how generally you'd treat the right-sided heart failure patient differently? I mean, we're going to get into the details of treatment a bit later, but just so people have a, a general sense of how important it is to identify sort of a more right-sided heart failure.
2: So so right-sided heart failure is really difficult to treat. It's just like when you see a patient who has pulmonary hypertension, you need to respect that disease. But I would use the same sort of paradigm we're going to talk about in all of heart failure and that tends to be there's an afterload issue. So the heart is pushing against something that's too strong for it to overcome. In this situation, it's not necessarily the systemic vascular resistance, although that's probably playing a role. Here, it's the pulmonary vascular resistance that's really hurting you. And how do you optimize pulmonary vascular resistance? Well, you want to decrease pulmonary vasoconstriction. So this is where we're optimizing their oxygen situation. The other issue is we know that there's interdependence between the right and left ventricle so as that right ventricle gets distended it pushes on the left ventricle and then it doesn't work and you're going to see more symptoms so fluid balance is going to be really important and I'm going to try and appropriately diurese these patients again it's really hard because if the right side of your heart doesn't work think of an inferior STEMI those patients are preload dependent so you can't pull all their fluid off. So in the end, what I say: if you have a patient who comes in with really bad right side heart failure in the emergency department, optimize their oxygenation, and then ask for some help because your point of care ultrasound is going to help you get through this. Understanding the etiology of the right side heart failure is going to help you get through this. But they are a very difficult patient population and a very precarious situation. Usually, we're going to start with trying to diurese them and remove some of this fluid, though.
0: That was just an. In- incredibly clear, concise, and simple way of explaining a very complicated concept that I've often myself had trouble understanding. So thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the underlying cause. Dr. Tillman, you had mentioned the underlying cause of the right heart failure, but let's talk about it in general with acute heart failure. Dr. Odeide, without going into the entire textbook list, what's the differential diagnosis of acute heart failure that's important to know in the ED that we kind of got to know now and start addressing and treating those underlying causes in the in the emergency department
1: yeah so the first three things you're going to want to have on your differential number one is ischemia um, number two is ischemia and number three is ischemia so we absolutely need to make sure that the trigger for their heart failure isn't some sort of ischemic event because we know that early angiography and intervention, is associated with lower mortality, with decreased cardiovascular deaths, with, you know, decreased heart failure readmissions. So we want to make sure we catch the ischemia early. That should be a reason for them to go to the cath lab um, relatively quickly. Then you're going to want to think about other things that could potentially be, you know, valvular in nature. So aortic stenosis is the one that, you know, we're always taught and we want to make sure that we don't um, miss that one. Um, Any sort of other valvular rupture, a big pericardial effusion or sort of tamponade could mask as heart failure symptoms. And then as we make our way into influenza season and we're still in the midst of COVID, we have to think about myocarditis or pericarditis as a cause of the uh, heart failure. COPD and asthma patients can be exceptionally challenging because they kind of come in with shortness of breath and you're not sure, you know, am I dealing with COPD? Am I dealing with heart failure? You may be dealing with both. um, And it might be the COPD that could actually be triggering the heart failure. Infection is a big one. So pneumonia, patients who have an acute pneumonia may present with heart failure exacerbations. We know that there's also high output failure. So things like um, thyrotoxicosis or severe anemia can present as a heart failure. And then the thing I see the most is really just kind of a non-adherence with either medication or a diet regimen that could be the trigger for their presentation to the emergency department in heart failure.
0: Beautiful. So while Probably the most common thing is just people not doing what they should at home in terms of their medications and their diet. The ones that we really need to be on the lookout for, ischemia is number one by far. And then there's all these other things that can make things confusing like COPD, pneumonia. We can't forget about uh, infection, things like myocarditis, endocarditis. Of course, we see this very rarely, but it's good to keep in the back of your mind is those high output narrow pulse pressure type patients uh, like thyrotoxicosis and severe anemia. All right. So now that we have a solid idea of how to diagnose CHF and understand the importance of searching for the underlying cause, it's time to move on to the treatment. So let's jump into a case. A 75-year-old woman with a history of CHF and hypertension comes in with a sudden onset of shortness of breath while shopping at the mall. EMS vitals are a heart rate of 140, Blood pressure of 180 on 120, respiratory rate of 34, O2SAT of 80%, and temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. She's diaphoretic, and when you see her in the emergency department, you become diaphoretic, and she looks like she's about to crash. Bizarrely, when you look very close at her forehead, you see the letters S C A P E. And the paramedic astutely says, I think her afterload is through the ceiling. So before we get into the nitty gritty of what to do when faced with a patient who's foaming at the mouth with pulmonary edema, Dr. Hudaidi, could you just go over for us what the general goals of treatment are for these kinds of patients?
1: For sure, and these are my f- some of my favorite types of patients because there's so much we can do in the emergency department to turn them around quickly. So the first thing I want to do is treat that pulmonary edema. So I need to address that quickly. That's going to reverse a lot of the, the vitals and the discomfort that the patient is having. This patient is not um, hypotensive. Obviously, if they come in hypotensive, you need to address that. I do need to address her hypertension, though, Because I need to reduce that afterload with my various agents in order to allow for that forward flow from that potentially failing left ventricle. I do want to optimize her volume status. So maybe that means taking off fluid. Maybe that means even giving a little bit of intravascular fluid. And then lastly, we want to identify some of those etiologies we already discussed in terms of the trigger for the heart failure so that we can provide definitive treatment.
0: All right. Fantastic. I love it. So the goals of treatment we should be keeping in mind for all these patients. I actually just this morning made up this very silly uh, mnemonic for this and it's called PPV Havoc. All right. So ready for this? So PPV is PPV, positive pressure ventilation. H is for hypotension. So you need to treat the hypotension usually with vasopressors. We're going to talk about that in part two. A is for afterload. So you need to reduce the afterload. And we'll talk about nitro and diuresis, et cetera. Then V is for volume status. So that's when you want to consider either taking away fluid, just like Dr. Hodaity said, or maybe even giving some fluid in some cases. And then C for the end of havoc is the cause. So treat the underlying cause, okay? So PPV havoc, our mnemonic for... The general goals of treatment. And if you think of these every time you're faced with a patient with heart failure, you will be a rock star. And talking about rock stars, if you couldn't make it to the November EM Cases Summit Conference that about 500 of your colleagues were lucky enough to register for, no worries, we've got you covered. You can head over to emcasesummit.com emcases to get your full access streaming package that includes all your favorite EM Cases guest experts delivering master classes, procedural walkthroughs, pitching each other tough cases, rants on cutting edge stuff not to miss out on. The podcast taken to the next level, really. If you're a regular EM Cases listener and user of the website, that has had free access all these years to all our resources and you found EM Cases beneficial. Please help support us by getting your EM Cases Summit streaming package available for about the next three months only. Okay, back to heart failure. Dr. Tillman, can you outline for us your general approach? You know, you have a slightly different lens on this as an intensivist. What's your kind of general approach? And uh, you're so good at explaining that physiology. Maybe you could kind of explain it based on the, the pathophysiology. What, what's, what's your approach?
2: I do like to split, I seem to be a splitter, patients into two categories. And so if someone comes in who I think has CHF, what I want to know is this a patient who is or is not hypotensive? And the reason I want to know that is it greatly changes the management pathway I'm going to go down after giving them non-invasive ventilation. NIV, I really love, regardless of what pathway I'm going down. But the reason I say this does sort of have to do with that pathophysiology, because when we're thinking of CHF, we're traditionally saying the heart cannot overcome the afterload. It's pushing against a brick wall, and the brick wall wins again, and so the fluid goes backwards. And that's most of the CHF we see and as dr hadidi said there are lots of things we can do there and it's a very rewarding patient population to treat because they seem to get better so quickly the other patient population though is those who the heart just isn't strong enough to push so their afterload's not sky high right now it could be normal or even low but the heart for whatever reason and we'll talk about etiologies a bit more can no longer overcome that So now our treatment goals aren't about decreasing their afterload or anything else. It's about making the heart that is not able to squeeze hard, squeeze harder. And it turns out that that's really hard. And hearts don't like being flogged by us. So when there's not something you can mechanically fix, it becomes a great challenge to help this patient through their disease process. So as I said, I split it between the patients who are hypotensive So the heart is so dysfunctional it cannot work with your usual afterload or patients who aren't hypotensive and they tend to be hypertensive and this is an afterload issue. And that's how I think of it in my mind.
0: Brilliant. Okay. So we are going to talk about those really scary patients who are in shock in part two, but let's get onto the specifics of management for the heart failure patient who is not in cardiogenic shock, like our 75-year-old with flash pulmonary edema and scape. So for those of you who don't know, scape that this patient had on their forehead stands for sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema. So first let's talk about oxygen. Now, we've got a few choices here for the acute heart failure patient who's satting below 90%. There's supplemental oxygen via a non-rebreather, there's high-flow nasal cannula, there's non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, BIPAP or CPAP, and of course, endotracheal intubation. Now, I want to talk about PPV in a bit more detail because that's where we'll see the biggest benefits for our patients in general. As Dr. Tillman was saying, he really likes PPV. But let's start with Dr. Hadidi First, who would we consider PPV in? And why? So it's, you know, the patient who's satting 95% on, you know, on a non rebreather, we're probably not going to be using PPV. I have seen people jump to PPV for like every heart failure patient. What are really the indications for PPV in heart failure patients?
1: Yeah. So with the positive pressure ventilation or non invasive ventilation, you're really targeting your patients who are having essentially respiratory failure, they're coming in tachypnic. they're coming in hypoxic, and you need to help overcome those two things. Kind of the other way to think about it is who's not going to benefit from this. And so you want to choose wisely, choose those patients wisely. So not every hypoxic and tachypnic patient who looks like they're in respiratory failure is going to do well on non-invasive. So if there's a ton of pulmonary edema, where they're unable to control their secretions. That's not somebody you want on non-invasive ventilation. Um, if they're vomiting, if they're unable to protect their airway, these are all you know contraindications to positive pressure ventilation. Now, the reason why we love non-invasive ventilation or positive pressure ventilation so much in the patient who has pulmonary edema, like the skate patient, and is hypoxic and tachypnic, is. The non-invasive ventilation helps decrease that work of breathing. It helps decrease the atelectasis, especially at the bases of the lungs, and that's going to increase gas exchange, which is so helpful for the hypoxic patient. That positive pressure ventilation increases your intrathoracic pressure, and that decreases cardiac preload, and that's just basic pathophys. And then you know, the thoracic muscles aren't working as hard as they have to, so you're going to decrease oxygen consumption by those muscles. So it hits from a variety of different angles, but it's something that is so readily available to us, and we can just reach for it and hook up the patient immediately.
0: Fantastic. So in terms of the evidence, I understand that the number needed to treat for in, for the need for intubation is 8, and the number needed to treat for mortality is 13, which is really amazing numbers. I do understand, however, that there's this one trial called the C3PO trial for all you Star Wars fans out there. It actually showed no difference in outcomes uh, for avoidance of intubation and for mortality uh, in patients who were put on NIPPV uh, for heart failure. What should we make of this study in light of all the other studies that show these incredible numbers?
1: So I'm going to take you even further back. Um, There were some studies that came out 2007, 2008 that looked specifically at just, you know, standard oxygen delivery and um, non-invasive ventilation, whether it was CPAP or BPAP. And what they found was that, yeah, there was no difference in terms of mortality or intubation rates, but in that first hour when the patient is in the emergency department and you are trying to turn them around as quickly as possible, that's where we really saw the improvement. So not only did the patients feel better in terms of their self-reported dyspnea, but their tachycardia improved, their associated acidosis improved, their hypercapnia improved, and there were no treatment-related adverse events. So we have a modality that can potentially make the patient feel better and improve their numbers in that short term, while they're in the emergency department in front of us, why wouldn't we reach for it? Even if it doesn't change outcomes later, I have something that's going to make them feel better sooner.
2: I'd also like to jump in quickly. I know this isn't a journal club on 3CPO, but it's it's an interesting paper to discuss and also the evidence that has come after. So first of all, the 3CPO is an incredible trial. Doing any of these complex three-arm intervention, randomized control trials is so difficult to do. And the authors have talked about some of the challenges in this. And if you really break down the numbers, one of the first things you have to realize is if a patient was failing standard oxygen, they were actually allowed to use a non-invasive method as a rescue And that was because their ethics institution said, based on this previous evidence, you probably have to allow that to happen. You can't jump straight to intubation if the clinician thinks it's going to happen. The challenge there, then, is your sickest patients in the standard arm got the intervention, but were treated as the standard arm, which is going to dilute your effect size. The two other challenges... There was no standardization of when someone should be intubated, which from an ICU standpoint is incredibly difficult. Some trials have tried to standardize this, but intubation is such a clinically-based decision that it's hard to make rules. And the third part is if you look at their mortality data, about 9% of their patients died. About 2% of the patients were intubated. And so the question is, who were these patients who were enrolled into this trial who sustained a mortality event but were never intubated because if you think of most of the people were pushing all these aggressive measures on part of their care package is going to include intubation so it's very difficult to know exactly how to apply this evidence What I would say if we're going to include this with where we're at now is you can look at the European Respiratory Society and the American Thoracic Society because they updated the clinical practice guidelines on non-invasive ventilation in 2017 and included this study in their meta-analyses and actually showed even with this large trial, which powered about 29% of the weight of their analysis, that there still appears to be a benefit using non-invasive ventilation. They weren't able to say, should it be CPAP or BiPAP? And I don't think any of us can say that yet. But it does appear, even when including this trial that didn't show a difference, that NIV does actually appear to not only make patients feel better, which is so important, we cannot overemphasize the importance of patient symptoms and the patient experience, but does actually appear to change these clinically meaningful outcomes, being intubation and mortality, So I would say, yes, I acknowledge 3CPO. It's an amazing trial and an amazing academic effort. And including that with all the other evidence we have, I would still for sure use NIV.
0: The bottom line is that despite the controversy stemming from the C-3PO trial, really the highest quality evidence to date shows that NIPPV does reduce mortality. It does reduce the need for intubation and ICU admissions. Um, But we should only be really using it in those patients who fail other modes of oxygenation. Um, we shouldn't just be slapping on BiPAP for every patient with heart failure. Uh, and I do like, Dr. Hidayati how, how we call BiPAP, BiPAP in Canada, and in the States, you guys call it BPAP? That's so cute. We BPAP. call it
1: everything. We call it's it like, BiPAP. <laughs> we call it BPAP. We call it everything.
0: <laughs> it's like Z and Z.
1: Well, I heard that BiPAP is like a brand. It's like a Kleenex, you Uh-oh. know.
0: So that's yeah. a no-no on EM cases. We uh, shouldn't <laughs> be talking about brands.
1: <laughs> that's what I heard. I don't know. <laughs>
0: okay. From now on, we're going to call it BiPAP. Then BiPAP. <laughs> I,
2: I too okay. have heard that uh, BiPAP is a brand. I haven't seen brand BiPAP, but I've
0: heard I haven't that seen as brand, well. But yes. Okay. Just to make it clear, we have no conflict of interest with NIPPV of any kind, proven by the fact that I had no idea. That BiPAP was actually a brand. Dr. Tillman, let's get into some of the details of actually applying BPAP or CPAP. I've seen many patients fail BPAP. The typical thing that happens is I order it, the RT comes, they try and put it on, and then 15 minutes later, I come back and they're still struggling, and then I say, Oh, just try harder. And then they, I come back another 20 minutes later and the patient's not doing well and they're not tolerating it. Or I get a call to the, to the recess that they're not tolerating it. We got to do something else. Let's intubate this patient. And you know, for various reasons, I don't think the patient needs to be intubated necessarily. So what are your practical tips and tricks on ensuring the success of your BPAP or CPAP?
2: Yeah, so you're very right. It's not always the most comfortable thing to have, either the air blowing into your face, it's some liking it to sticking your head out of the car while you're driving down the highway, or the tight mask. Uh, So my first piece of advice, a little tongue-in-cheek, but is to work with amazing RTs. Uh, It's our colleagues who help get these things on, and working with a great group makes this so much easier. And a little shout-out to my colleagues at Sunnybrook for that. But as far as things you can try and do, first of all, don't start it at 11. Uh, This isn't spinal tap. We don't need to crank things up here. Start at a lower setting, so like a 6 centimeters of water as your end expiratory pressure, or for CPAP, that's your entire pressure there. You can start it lower and then slowly titrate it up. And also, maybe not squeezing the mask on their head right away, locking in all the straps, you can gently apply it. Or if the patient's doing really well, they can actually hold—I shouldn't put my hand in front of my face while I'm talking into a Uh, mic—they can hold the mask onto their face themselves and slowly get accustomed to it. And then as they're learning to breathe with the machine, you can start to increase the support as they need. The same thing would happen with a bi-level situation where you would again set their end expiratory pressure to six centimeters of water and then have the pressure on top of it not be a large change. So maybe somewhere between two to five centimeters of water on top of that. So their inspiratory pressure is around 10 centimeters of water and then again slowly increase. So the idea here is although this patient looks awful and like they're about to die, Running in and slapping it on their face probably is going to make the situation worse. Start slow, work with the patient, and start low. You also have to think that there's going to be a point where the pressure is too high and you start opening their esophagus. And we generally think that's delivering a pressure about 20 centimeters of water. So you want to work in that tight range where I start around five and I max out at 20. The last thing we can do is try and help pharmacologically make it easier for the patient. We have lots of different medications to help a patient tolerate this very uncomfortable mask. Some people like using fentanyl. They like using it because it's short-acting and it may help the patient be a bit more comfortable. Of course, the challenge with fentanyl is it's a respiratory depressant, uh, but it's pretty cardiac stable, so not a bad choice to use. Some people like using ketamine because it's a breathe-through sedative. Unfortunately, it's also a sympathomimetic, so it's going to drive up your sympathic drive. That being said, if you've used it all, probably not going to change anything. I'm sure we've all seen that in trauma where you give someone a bolus of ketamine and goodbye to their blood pressure. Some people like using dexmedetomidine uh, if you have access to that in your emergency department. Again, it's a cardiac depressant. So you can use any medication that you are comfortable with. The idea, if you're going to use a facilitated non-invasive ventilation... You have to know what the side effects are, which is why I tell people to use the drug that they're most comfortable with, because then you can work with it and understand how a patient's going to react to it. To really summarize, low and slow, hold the mask to their face or have the patient hold the mask to their face. If you're going to use a medication to help facilitate this, make sure you understand how that medication is going to interact with either their respiratory drive or their cardiac function.
0: Beautifully summarized. I don't need to summarize that one. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade. I love getting the shifts I want when I want within the constraints of my group. And as I get older, my circadian rhythms become more fragile. Metricade is super circadian rhythm friendly so that I'm almost never tired when I start a shift, which is almost unheard of without a scheduling system like Metricade. Go to metricade.com emcases for more info. Let's say we've got a patient on a non-rebreather. We're thinking of applying BPAP or CPAP, but there's perhaps maybe a bridge in between there, and what I'm hinting at is high-flow nasal cannula. I understand there was a study in 2019 comparing high-flow nasal oxygen to endotracheal intubation in patients with acute heart failure that suggested that outcomes were actually similar, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, Is there a role for high-flow nasal cannula for, say, the patient who can't tolerate BPAP or... In those patients who don't quite meet the criteria for BPAP, but who aren't doing so well on a non rebreather?
1: So I like to think there's a role. Um, if you take just your average acute heart failure patient who's coming in and they're, you know, quasi respiratory failure and they're not tolerating that non invasive ventilation, your next step would be what? Intubation. And so if you have an opportunity or a mechanism to stave off that intubation, why wouldn't you use it? So high-flow nasal cannula, is, it's more comfortable. We know that compared to BPAP or CPAP. Um, it likely provides a little bit of PEEP in the same way that non-invasive ventilation does. We can't accurately measure this, but we know it does this. Um, it takes away that physiologic dead space in the upper airway and it's going to provide higher FiO2 than the nasal cannula would. So we have a device that we have access to that could potentially um, stave off intubation. I think we should use it. The study you mentioned was relatively small, and they were you know, looking at patients who have acute heart failure and respiratory failure, and they kind of divvied them up into high-flow nasal cannula versus intubation. And what they found was that you know, 87% of the high-flow nasal cannula patients recovered without any need for or escalation to endotracheal intubation. So how great for the patient. Um, And the two groups were pretty well matched in terms of their characteristics. So, you know, the answer again is why not, honestly?
0: Great. So it sounds like high-flow nasal cannula does have a role, especially in those patients who can't tolerate BPAP or CPAP, and those patients who, like you said, are they have contraindications like like they're vomiting. And for whatever reason, you really don't want to go down the endotracheal intubation road. Dr. Tillman, any any comments about high flow?
2: So I'd I'd like to really highlight that first part that both of you said there about the patients who can't tolerate non-invasive ventilation through the mask interface. Because There has been a ton of interest in high flow, especially during the COVID pandemic. The more evidence we see about high flow, it may not be quite as amazing as we thought. There's a a nice meta-analysis in JAMA looking at all patients with respiratory failure and what forms of non-invasive ventilation work for them. So I think my biggest concern whenever we talk about high flow and heart failure is people starting to use it instead of using a BPAP or a CPAP, whereas most of the evidence we have shows that these interfaces are the ones that will benefit patients. And although, yes, these patients are well-matched, it's still an observational study. There is still going to be confounding by indication. There's going to be unmeasured bias that we just can't control for, and that will always be a challenge. And all the research I do is observational, so I believe observational research is incredibly important but it's really hard to say we should be using high flow as a first line here. And so my concern always is when people hear about high flow in any disease state, high flow is more comfortable. Why not put it on? And so I would really sort of highlight that if you're going to put someone on some form of non-invasive ventilation, start with your C or B paps. And then it's the patient's who fail but not in the glorious failure manner where you're like welcome to the endotracheal tube but that sort of uh they can't tolerate it but they don't look awful then yeah to me that does make sense to use high flow nasal cannula as this bridge to hopefully walk them through and so that's where i see it and i just don't want people to leave this podcast thinking huh i don't need to strap a mask on someone's face anymore we can just put these nice nasal prongs on
0: all right. Good point. Yeah. So if you do have a choice, use BPAP or CPAP. If you can't, for whatever reason, use BPAP or CPAP, then you can try high-flow nasal cannula. Think of it as a second-line oxygenation strategy. All right. Dr. Tillman, way back when I started practice in uh, the Stone Age, furosemide was considered the first-line medication for acute heart failure. That's probably not true these days. We're far more likely to reach for nitroglycerin or BPAP first, but we'll get into the details of that a bit later. Let's talk about that run-of-the-mill CHF patient who's had increased leg swelling, weight gain, shortness of breath, PND, and orthopnea over several days, so not the scape patient. Can you just explain to our listeners what the role of furosemide is in the ED management of the patient with acute heart failure in general?
2: Certainly and I I think it's so important to identify the correct patient population because really what you're describing is a patient who has total body volume overload which is different than many other patients where it's an afterload issue or a cardiac function issue. So when you're looking at a patient with total volume overload you do want to help them remove fluid from their body and there's a number of reasons for this. First of all as I alluded to when talking about right-side heart failure, the heart doesn't like being fluid overload. Specifically, the right side of the heart just does not tolerate this well. So having the patient move fluid can actually help their cardiac function. And other organs don't like this too. If you have a congested kidney, it's going to interfere with the blood flow and your ability to excrete urine. So if you are able to decrease their total volume status You may actually improve their diuresis not just through the action of the medication, but the idea you're actually helping with renal perfusion. And there is some evidence showing that people who have furosemide earlier in their presentation do end up having better outcomes. The challenge with any time-to-intervention study is we're timing it from when they see us, not from when they actually start developing their disease. So these studies may always be a patient who's easier to recognize or who we treat faster does better, but it does highlight that there still remains a role of diuresis in a lot of patients with congestive heart failure. And I think it really comes down to the history taking here and understanding the patient who is truly volume overloaded and classically, that's a patient who either hasn't been able to get their medications for whatever reason, hasn't been taking the medication, or is unable to stick to a one liter per day fluid strategy, because I don't know who can, where you have this clear history of this is a pure volume problem, or this is a volume problem in combination with something else. And then the last part that comes up is how are you going to give this diuresis? And when I think of it, I still like to use that rule I was taught in medical school where I take their home dose of diuretic and I double it. You can either do that by just doubling it and giving it orally, but as we're in the emergency department and these patients are usually pretty sick, I am going to give it IV and we tend to think that your IV dose is equivalent to twice your oral dose, so you can take their total daily dose and just give it as an IV formulation. And that's where I'm going to start.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about that study. I think it was out of Jack a few years back um, that suggested a door-to-needle time of under 60 minutes for, fur- for furosemide was associated with improved survival, which kind of surprised me because you know a few years ago it was all like you know nitro BiPAP, sorry BIPAP, and you know it's like the, furos- the furosemide can wait, which may be true for, as you were saying for those patients who it's mostly an afterload problem. Actually, the vast majority of patients I see in my emergency department with acute heart failure are the ones that you were describing who are just over a couple of weeks have just gotten more and more fluid overloaded. Is it fair enough to say that in those patients, those classic patients who have just been gradually getting worse over a few days rather than the flash pulmonary edema uh, or cardiogenic shock, that it's, it's fair enough to say that really furosemide you should be giving kind of as soon as possible along with your other treatments?
2: I think that's a completely fair statement, and I think it's part of understanding that there's a variety of targets for treatment of someone in CHF, uh, again, which is why so many of us like treating this disease, because there are so many things we can do, and we love doing things.
0: All right, fair enough. And Dr. Hodaidi, uh, any comments when it comes to the timing of giving furosemide and the the dosing? Dr. Tillman had mentioned how he doses. There's also, you know, whether an infusion is better of furosemide or bolusing is better. Um, whether they have renal dysfunction or not, all these things come into play when deciding on your on your dosing and timing of furosemide. What's your take?
1: Yeah, so I usually either do one to two times their oral dose. I almost always will give it IV because all of these patients have have a line in. You should see diuresis, you know, within. Th- 30 to 60 minutes, typically. Furosemide does also have a pulmonary venodilatory effect. And I only know this because our Canadian D recently discussed this in our little education group. So that effect actually kicks in within five to 15 minutes. And so while we may not see the diuresis for quite some time, that pulmonary vasculature dilation may add a little something to your management of, of heart failure and pulmonary edema. Well,
0: that's interesting. I mean, that's that's very contrary to what we were teaching for years and years and years that, uh, you know, well, Lasix takes so much time. There's no rush to give it. You know, this is just conjecture, but that might be the mechanism of why the Jack study showed that Giving it to patients within an hour of arrival improves mortality. Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, I mean that Jack study was a little flawed on multiple levels, um, and you know that deserves its own journal club. So you know there were differences in the in the patient groups with early versus later furosemide.
0: Okay, yeah, actually, I'll I'll refer people to uh, Rebel EM, and I believe SGM also did great deep dives into that particular study. But suffice to say, not a great study, but interesting.
1: Yeah. In terms of your other question about um, drip versus bolus, there are a few studies that show that drips or infusions are associated with increased uh, urine output. Others really showed no difference. Patients who get kind of that high dose furosemide trend toward higher rates of of diuresis and just you know improved overall outcomes, but they also had increases in their creatinine at greater rates. So you know there's there's going to be pluses and minuses to to doing this um, in terms of you know whether you you should bolus or do an infusion. I can tell you that. If I start a furosemide infusion at my institution, that is going to require a CCU bed or an ICU bed. And so for me, doing IV boluses of these medications helps me save that that precious commodity of the ICU bed.
0: Great practical reason to to use boluses.
2: I, I would totally chime in and agree with that. Uh, A infusion is a more labor-intensive setup for us, and my takeaway from the evidence so far has been maybe it decreases your total dose of furosemide, but it's not changing a patient-centered outcome. The only other reason I sometimes like using a furosemide infusion in someone who's already made it to the unit, so this isn't in the emergency departments. this is we've made the decision they need to be here, is... Ferozomide's autotoxicity tends to be related to the volume and push at the speed you push it. So some of these patients end up getting 120 milligrams every six hours. But if you bolus that in really fast, you can start increasing the risk of autotoxicity and probably not something we're following up well enough from ICU patients as we don't have great ICU follow-up clinics yet. But that's one of the things that I do worry about if these people are getting these monster doses of furosemide and there I may switch to an infusion just to create another barrier to stopping from bolusing in a huge dose. But for me, that's really the only reason I do it. Other than that, uh, I find it far easier and far more uh, resource practical to use bolus dosing furosemide.
0: All right. One last thing before we leave furosemide is, that I, I mentioned a little bit before was the patient with renal insufficiency, and that always confuses me because you know if you give too much furosemide, you're going to make their renal insufficiency worse, but they also say that you need a higher dose of furosemide in patients with renal insufficiency. So how do you decide to adjust your dose if the patient has renal insufficiency?
2: Yeah, so definitely a challenging patient population. The first thing I'm hoping is that they have chronic renal insufficiency and they're on a dose of furosemide that works for it, because then it makes my life easy. I'm taking that dose and doubling it. It's if they have acute renal failure. So then the first thing you want to think is, do I have the right diagnosis? which often you do. Heart failure, renal failure, go hand in hand. It's the classic argument in every internet meme about nephro and cardiology, disagreeing about what the problem is. But these patients, I want to think, first of all, is this truly an afterload problem and a volume overload problem, and I should treat that, versus is this a cardiogenic shock problem, and I'm treating that. If I've then decided, okay, this is an afterload and fluid overload problem or the fluid overload is making the heart not work well, then I'm probably going to make the decision in my mind and with the patient that your renal function may get worse or we may actually unmask how bad your renal function is and give you a high enough dose of diuretic to see the renal response in that half hour to 60 minutes. And I will actually, I'll start with the same approach, which is probably double their home dose now, if they don't pee within 30 to 60 minutes, and I've truly decided that this is a patient where the volume needs to go away, and that's the problem, and the pump is still working, I'm going to repeat that.
0: All right, excellent. So the bottom line then for furosemide is if you give it, probably best to give it early, even though the study that showed the improved mortality had its flaws. And the dose really depends on a few factors that we discussed And that renal insufficiency patient is is a challenging one. Now, let's say you've given your furosemide. You've given lots of furosemide. And an hour, hour and a half later, you see like almost nothing in the Foley bag. They've got pretty much no urine output. It is not working. There has been some talk about adding a second diuretic. Uh, Metallizone has been thrown out there chlorothiazide which is another iv medication has been thrown out there is there any role in the emergency department for adding another diuretic in the patient who seems to have failed furosemide
2: so my quick way of thinking of this is if you've come in with acute heart failure and you now have renal failure where you're unable to void this patient's going to be admitted likely to an icu Uh, So the choice of adding on another agent is going to end up being something that is done by the inpatient team. And more importantly, this is a patient who's headed towards dialysis if that's within their sort of care parameters. So do I add a medication when I'm working in the unit? I'll use metallizone sometimes to truly demonstrate that their kidneys are not responding More often, I add second agents to help with clearing sodium as we tend to get a lot of hypernatremia. So in the acute emergency situation, patient comes in in heart failure, they're profoundly fluid overloaded, they're not responding to your diuretic, call your friendly nephrologist and go from there as opposed to adding on a second diuretic.
0: So know your furosemide dosing, understand it, leave the complicated second line diuretic decision to the inpatient team. So we've covered diuretics. What about ACE inhibitors? So ACE inhibitors are great at reducing afterload. So it would make sense in those patients who are hypertensive and who have a high afterload to give an ACE inhibitor acutely in the emergency department. Dr. Hadaidi, what does the evidence tell us when it comes to ACE inhibitors in acute heart failure?
1: Yeah, ACE inhibitors are one of those agents where initially, and I remember this when I first started practicing, it was one of those measures of your clinical accuracy and superiority was how quickly you prescribed that ACE inhibitor, you ordered that ACE inhibitor in the emergency department in the setting of acute heart failure. And now we've definitely moved away from that. So the problem with the ACE inhibitors is, and most of these patients are already on them at home long-term, is that if you have a patient that's not particularly stable and and they come in and then you give them either an iv or a po ace inhibitor but then you're also managing them with your diuretics and your iv nitroglycerin and your non-invasive ventilation then you are increasing their risk for that blood pressure to drop precipitously and also increasing their risk of kidney injury um, if they're not perfusing those kidneys well, and you're also throwing all these diuretics potentially at them. So in the emergency department for these specific patients, there's really not a big role for ACE inhibitor up front.
0: All right. So there are some risks there with ACE inhibitors. Bottom line is not much of a role in the emergency department, maybe on on the inpatient side. While it makes physiologic sense that it'll decrease afterload, you can run the risk of putting the patient into acute renal failure, or worse, if you give an ACE inhibitor to a patient who has aortic stenosis that you don't know about, that patient can crash. So not much of a role for ACE inhibitor in the ED. So Let's say we do have this very hypertensive acute heart failure patient in front of us. We all know that the first line medication is going to be nitroglycerin. One of the common pitfalls in giving nitroglycerin in these patients is not giving enough. So, Dr. Tillman, how should we give nitroglycerin in the acute hypertensive heart failure patient? What's your kind of cocktail? And then we'll ask Dr. Hodayati what hers is. Uh, And again, we can talk about boluses versus infusion. How do you make this happen?
2: Yeah, so I completely agree with what you said there that we do not give enough nitro when we start it. And when you look at the monogram that's inserted with the nitroglycerin, the infusion start at an incredibly low dose and that's what we tend to follow. So the way I like to do this is I see a patient, one of these skate patients, is I give them three sprays of nitro under the tongue to think of that as a loading or bolus dose And then on goes the mask to help decrease their preload and their afterload, and I'll start the infusion. The reason I start with the sprays is it's easier and usually more readily accessible. If you think of what we have in the emergency department, it's very rare we have bags of nitro mixed up, at least in the departments I've worked in. But you can find a spray of nitro around every corner, so you can get into them quickly. And then I'm going to start my nitro drips around 50 to 100 mics per minute. I still, although I don't know why, I still start closer to the 50. Although when you look at most of the evidence, you can probably start much higher than that. And I think it's just because during my training, starting at 10 mics a minute was considered high. So I'm still trying to overcome that idea that sits in the back of my brain that I'm giving them far too much drug. So easily three sprays of nitro start the non-invasive ventilation and get the infusion going.
0: Right, yeah. So the spray of nitro is actually a, a big dose of nitroglycerin. It's 400 micrograms. Boom. And three sprays, that's 1200 micrograms you're giving within a few seconds. Yep. I think we kind of forget that, you know, that the nitro Glycerin has a massive dose in it. And then it's like, oh, can I please have five micrograms of uh, IV nitroglycerin? I mean, it's like homeopathic compared to what you've just given. So I like that. Okay, so three sprays of nitro, 0.4 milligrams each right away. Put the mask on. Then your nurses have time to set up the IV and run it at at least 50 mics. Dr. Hadayati, your uh, cocktail when it comes to nitro?
1: I have a similar strategy. So you said homeopathic. I had an attending that used to call it pissing in the wind with the low dose (laughs) nitroglycerin. Yours is more professional. Um, But I lead with the three tabs. We don't have spray, but the three tabs. And you're absolutely right. If you're starting with 400 micrograms each times three and you have 1,200 micrograms, even if... Say half of that hits the bloodstream. So let's say 50% absorption, you're looking at 600 micrograms hitting the bloodstream at one time. And then starting the infusion at five makes absolutely zero sense. So, yes, I start big. So I'm looking at 100 to 200. And nitroglycerin is so quick on, quick off that you can always back down if you need to. Most of the time you end up needing to escalate up anyway in these situations.
0: Absolutely. All right. So the bottom line with nitroglycerin, don't be wimpy with your nitroglycerin. You need high doses. We're talking at least 50 mics. Uh, In the escape patient, we're talking 100, 200 mics IV just to start off. As you said, Dr. Hedayati, it's very easy to turn off if you do overshoot and While the infusion is being set up, you can give a few sprays of nitro sublingual or or the tab if that's what you use. We like nitro. It reduces intubation. It reduces ICU admission rates. Unfortunately, there's been no evidence that it reduces mortality, but that is what we're pretty much all going to be reaching for right off the bat. All right, let's say that you've given your nitroglycerin, you've titrated your infusion, you're at a nice high dose but your nitroglycerin isn't working so well. Dr. Hudaidi, in 2021, is there any role for adding morphine? This is what we used to do in the old days. We used to give morphine to everyone with congestive heart failure. What's your take?
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You would hope that maybe relaxing them a little bit might help them be more comfortable You know, unfortunately, we know that morphine in this specific setting, it increases mortality, it increases intubation rates, it increases ICU admission rates. So as an anxiolytic in this specific setting, morphine is a no-no. Um, If you need something, uh, a little something to sprinkle on them as uh, an anxiolytic, then something that's shorter acting, that's quick on and quick off, like fentanyl, might be uh, the better option. And that's really just to help facilitate the other things that you need to provide, for example, your non-invasive ventilation.
0: We had a a long discussion in the previous episode about morphine. It was Dr. Brian Steinhardt had mentioned that when you look at the studies carefully with morphine, that it's really only high-dose morphine that leads to all those horrible outcomes that you mentioned, and that he was still a believer that uh, a bit of low-dose morphine, especially in those patients who you get the sense require an anxiolytic, that there's still a little role. For morphine. Uh, Dr. Tillman, what do you think? No morphine at all ever, or a little bit of a small dose of morphine is, is not a bad thing?
2: So I, I would say I'm more with Dr. Hedayati here. I'm I'm not reaching for the morphine. And yes, I, I do like opioid-first anziolysis uh, when I'm treating my critically ill patients. You want to ensure the drug you're using is being used for the desired effect. So there are many types of medications that can help with anxiolytics. So sometimes, as much as I hate them, I'll even use a benzodiazepine. And especially if you're thinking about someone who's in heart failure because of a toxic congestion, think of our patients who have taken cocaine, then a benzo is actually the drug you want to use. So I would say that understand what you're trying to achieve by adding one of these medications on. And again, like we talked about earlier, Know the drugs you like to use and know the side effects that they have. So, in this situation, I still look at using the ketamines and the dexmetatomidines because I have access to them and I'm used to using them. But also, sometimes I will use fentanyl or midazolam, but I don't use morphine.
0: All righty. Dr. Hadidy, do you want to give us sort of your, your master review take home messages?
1: So, in summary, The acute decompensated heart failure patient who comes in with pulmonary edema, you are going to want to start your non-invasive ventilation early. You want to give nitroglycerin, lead with the tablets or sprays up to three is typically how we start, and then get that infusion going. When you start the infusion, don't give the wimpy doses, but start big, 100 micrograms per minute and get that going in. And diuretics do have a role in patients who have signs of systemic overload, and your goal is to bring them to euvolemia.
0: Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we had talked about POCUS. For POCUS, we're not just looking for B-lines. But you can use POCUS for JVD, for cardiac contractility, for IVC collapsibility, to look at their volume status. It can really help you out a lot with the diagnosis and the underlying cause. And in terms of the underlying cause, don't forget that it's ischemia, ischemia, ischemia are the the top three. But then we really need to consider and treat whether this is coming from myocarditis, COPD, thyrotoxicosis or the, whether it's the usual just medication non-compliance, or they went out for a really salty dinner at McDonald's last night. Well, that about wraps it up for part one of our part two series on management of acute heart failure. In part two, we're going to discuss the sickest 10% of heart failure patients we see in the ED, and those are the patients who are also in cardiogenic shock. So, Thank you very much, Dr. Tillman and Dr. Hidayati, for your insights into part one. We'll speak to you in part two.
2: Awesome. Thank you for having us, and I look forward to being back.
1: Thanks for having me on. If you
0: had not a chance to pick up your full access streaming package to the EM Cases Summit just this last November, please help support EM Cases and ensure that we continue to provide the podcast, videos, blogs, just for Nuggets, Pearl of the Week, and Quiz Vault for free for you. By heading over to emcasesummit.com. So that's not emergency it's emcasesummit.com. There you can get access to all the talks, all the panel discussions, all the procedural videos and rants that were so expertly delivered by your favorite EM Cases guest experts. So until next time, take it easy.